The Christmas story, the way it's usually told, the God born a man in a manger and all of that, escapes some moderns, mostly, I think, because they seek complex answers to their questions, and this one is so utterly simple. So for the cynics and the skeptics and the unconvinced, I'd like to submit this modern parable. The man I'm talking about was not a Scrooge now. He was a kind, a decent, a mostly good man, generous to his family and upright in his dealings with other men, but he just did not believe in all of that incarnation stuff which the churches proclaim at Christmas time. It just did not make sense, and he was too honest to pretend otherwise. He could not swallow the Jesus story about God coming to earth as a man. He told his wife, I'm truly sorry to distress you, but I'm just not going with you to church this Christmas Eve. He said he'd feel like a hypocrite, that he'd much rather just stay home, but that he would wait up for them. So he stayed, and they went to the midnight service. Now, shortly after the family drove away in the car, snow began to fall. He went to the window to watch the flurries getting heavier and heavier. Then he went back to his fireside chair, began to read his newspaper. Minutes later, he was startled by a thudding sound, and then another, then yet another. At first he thought somebody must be throwing snowballs against the living room window. But when he went to the front door to investigate, he found a flock of birds huddled out there miserably in the snow. They had been caught in the storm in a desperate search for shelter. They had tried to fly through his large landscape window. That was what had been making the sound. Well, he couldn't let those poor creatures just lie there and freeze. So he remembered the barn where his children stabled their pony. That would provide a warm shelter. All he would have to do is direct the birds into that shelter. Quickly, he put on a coat and galoshes, and he tramped through the deepening snow to the barn, and he opened the doors wide. And inside the barn, he turned on a light so the birds would know the way in. But the birds did not come in. So he figured that food would entice them. He went back into the house and fetched some breadcrumbs and sprinkled those on the snow, making a trail of breadcrumbs to the yellow-lighted, wide-open doorway of the stable. But to his dismay, the birds ignored the breadcrumbs. The birds just continued to flop around helplessly in the snow. He tried catching them. He could not. He tried shooing them into the barn by walking around them, waving his arms, but instead they scattered in every direction, every direction except into the warm-lighted barn. And that's when he realized that they were afraid of him. They were afraid of him. To him he reasoned, I'm a strange, terrifying creature. If only I could think of some way to let them know that they can trust me, that I'm not trying to hurt them but to help them. But how? Any move he made tended to frighten them and confuse them. They just would not follow. They would not be led or shooed because they feared him. And he thought to himself, if only I could be a bird now, if I could be a bird and mingle with them, and speak their language, and tell them not to be afraid, then I could show them the way to the safe, warm barn. But I would have to be one of them. 
wouldn't I? So they could see and hear and understand. At that moment, the church bells began to ring. The sound reached his ears. Above the sounds of the wind, and he stood there listening to the bells. Adeste fidelis, listening to the bells, pealing the glad tidings of Christmas, and he sank to his knees in the snow. Paul Harvey, I hope for you and those you love. This will be a wonderfully merry Christmas. Boy, listening to that just does something to my heart. Partly because it reminds me of some great times with my dad out in western Kansas when he would invite me to go to work with him when he'd be traveling in the oil fields. At noon every day his radio would be tuned to listen to Paul Harvey as he would give his version of the news report and the first introduction to a story that would not be completed until 4.30 in the afternoon in a segment that he referred to as the rest of the story. I enjoyed listening to Paul Harvey with my dad, enjoyed listening to his insights, really did, but that's not why I wanted to share that with you this morning. What I wanted you to really know is that the first time Paul Harvey recorded what we just listened to was in 1965, 57 years ago, that was recorded. The one who we just listened to is now dead, and I believe in the presence of the Lord. There is some value in listening to old voices when we come to specific seasons of the year like this. There is value in listening to the old voices, things that were written or recorded long before us to solidify what we believe about certain things, especially Christmas. This morning, I want to show you someone in Scripture that understood that exact thing the power of the old voices when it came to telling the story of Jesus coming to this earth. His name's Matthew. I know that you've heard of him. There are some very obvious things about this guy in the Bible. Starts with this. He is the author of the first book of the New Testament. Boy, that's not groundbreaking, is it? You don't really need a preacher to share that with you. When we first meet him in the Bible, we meet him by his original name, Levi. He was a tax collector by trade. That was a position that he purchased from the Roman government. An interesting position that would put him on the outs with everyone around him. It meant that he would trade in a lot of different things in life to have that position. He was from Capernaum, which just happens to be the adult home of Jesus. That's where by all accounts, he grew up, and that's where he worked. He hosted a party, at least one, in his own home. That party was made up of tax collectors and politicians. Nobody else would have wanted to be in anywhere near it except Jesus. 
Jesus was the guest of honor for that party that Matthew hosted. He wanted the people that he worked around, he wanted the people that possibly he would refer to as his friends to know about the Savior as well, about the one that would change his life. By all accounts, by every record that we have, that is the last time Matthew ever associated with that group of people, those that he invited to his home. Now, there are some often overlooked things about Matthew as well. Like this, we know very, very little about his backstory. Very little. In fact, it's pretty safe to say that we know nothing of his backstory. We do know this, though. The people that he grew up with, the people that he did life with, would have seen him as a traitor and as a thief. That's how tax collectors were viewed. It is so interesting to me that that's the way all of these people, his peers, those that would have been his childhood friends, the rejection that would have followed Matthew because of his choice to go into the profession that he did. He would have been ostracized in almost every aspect and arena of life except his professional life. That's why this obscure fact about Matthew catches my attention so strongly. He is the only one of the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to mention the church. He's the only one of the four gospel writers. The church would be a place of acceptance. The church would be a place where he would be welcomed. Matthew wrote about the church. None of the others did, but Matthew did. He listened to what Jesus had to say about it. And it stuck to him, so he wrote about it. That's interesting to me. By trade, as we've already said, Matthew was a tax collector. But by God's spirit, by his gifting, he was a bridge builder. Now let me explain that to you. It would be extremely difficult for us to get from the Old Testament to the New without Matthew. We need the things that he wrote about We need his book in order to bridge the span between the Old Testament and the New. There is a 400-year period of silence between Malachi and Matthew. Matthew breaks the silence of God very, very well. We need what he wrote about. We need the things that he penned in order to understand what will follow, even within the other Gospels. He was a bridge builder. And that happened by God's Spirit. It really did. I like the way Alexander White says this about Matthew. When Matthew left his job to follow Christ, he brought his pen with him. And that's how he built a bridge. I want to give you just a couple of highlights out of Matthew's life and his book before we open it. Things that are very important for you to know. Number one, it was written 20 to 30 years after the ascension of Jesus into heaven. That dating is incredibly important. 20 to 30 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. And Matthew wrote with a target audience in mind. So did Mark. So did Luke. So did John. Each one of them had a target audience, and their books have then actually been titled according to their target audiences. 
Here's a way to remember it. You can take a picture of this and then write these things in the margin of your Bible if you'd like to. Matthew wrote to the Jews. His book is often called The Gospel of the King. Mark wrote to the Romans. His book has been called The Gospel of the Servant. Luke wrote to the Greeks as he presented Jesus as the perfect son of man. And John's appeal is as universal as his message was. Jesus is the son of God. Those are the target audiences for each of the Gospels. And like I say, you may want to go back and, and write those subtitles over the name of every one of those books in your Bible so that you can remember who the target audience was. 20 to 30 years after the ascension of Jesus into heaven, Matthew wrote his. You hold on to that. It's very important. He wrote about that between the ascension and then the fall of Jerusalem to the Romans. It is very important that you bookend those two things with his book if you really want to understand the entire depth of it. Then here's the second thing that I want you to know. As you go through the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will not find, not one time, will you find a recorded word of Matthew. Nothing that he ever said. That's a unique thing about a gospel writer. You will never find one word that came from his mouth. It may very well be that this quiet man never recorded any of his own words. Maybe he didn't share that many, but he never recorded any of them because he understood the value of the old voices, particularly when it comes to telling the story of Jesus. The old voices, the voices of the past, need to speak very loudly. It seems like Matthew understood that. There are 129 references or allusions to the Old Testament in Matthew's gospel alone. 129 references or allusions to the Old Testament. He knew the power of the old voices, particularly when it comes to mining the depths of Jesus in the here and now. He knew that we needed to listen to the voices of the past. And there is probably no other place in his gospel that proves that more than the second chapter. Why don't you open with me to Matthew chapter 2, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. You're going to see some of the voices of the past as they rise off the page for you. Matthew chapter 2. This won't take very long, so we're going to read the entire chapter. It's a special telling of the Christmas story. Verse 1. Listen to what this bridge builder says. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." 
Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, if you're a note taker, if you're somebody given to writing in your Bible and marking it up, and, and let me just be honest with you and say, I hope you are, because that is a way of charting your way through Scripture and even a way for people to follow you if they ever pick up your Bible. So don't be afraid to mark up your Bible. I grew up in a time when people would say, don't you even think about doing that. Thankfully, I had some teachers that said, oh, think about it and do it. So don't be afraid to mark up your Bible, to draw lines in there and write notes in there. It's like a journal when somebody gets a hold of it. So don't be afraid of that. If you're a person that is given to doing that, get a pen in hand, grab a pencil, because I'm going to show you four verses that you need to underline or highlight, because they show exactly what we are talking about. These are the old voices, the voices from the past. They are found in verse 5, verse 15, verse 17, and verse 23. Now, let me just give you some excerpts from each, starting in verse 5. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. Then we skip down to verse 11. Going to the house, they saw the child with Mary and her mother, and they fell down and worshipped. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed by their own country by another way. And that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. I had highlighted that another time. This is, this is actually verse 15. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, 
Verse 23, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. See how the old voices mattered to Matthew? He's calling on the prophets to solidify the message that he is bringing. Nathan Jones, who is working today for a wonderful ministry called Lamb and Lion Ministries, they deal a lot with biblical prophecy. Nathan Jones makes this statement. It's amazing in the Old Testament that there are 300 general prophecies and 109 specific prophecies about the first coming of Jesus Christ. Of all of those prophecies in the Old Testament, Matthew grabbed these four. He grabbed hold of these four, and he wrote about them at the beginning of his book. It is as if to say that of all of these 409 prophecies, of all of these other ones that you could come across in the Old Testament, these four are all you should need. Now, as he does that, He is in essence saying that one man, Jesus, fulfilled these four. And the odds of one man, Jesus, fulfilling these four prophecies is so remarkable that it should blow your mind. You don't need all of the others to do that. He just grabbed these four. And he allows them to stand each on their own. But as he brings them together in Matthew chapter 2 to tell his version of the Christmas story, his audience, the Jewish people that would be reading this, those that would understand Jesus born as a king, why it was all they needed. It was all they needed. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew just grabbed those four. And hopefully for us, even as Gentiles, when we recognize the fulfillment of those four prophecies through the person of Jesus Christ, it is enough for us to say, we believe. It is enough for us to arrive at a place where we can settle for ourselves who Jesus Christ is. But if that is not enough, if those four prophecies, voices from the past, are not enough for you, then let me throw some geography on top of it. Biblical geography. The first one actually comes from the voices of the past, the old voices. He is quoting the prophet Jeremiah from the Old Testament in verse 18. Listen to this again. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now let me just be honest with you and tell you that as a preacher, I've always been intrigued by that passage. As a student of the Bible, I've always been curious about that passage. But even in my intrigue and curiosity, I have never until this past week explored that passage. So this is all from stuff that I have been digging around in this past week. And man, I am so glad that I decided to peel away this layer of the onion that I might recognize why Matthew would choose that prophecy to be one of them that he would put in his book, just one of four. And it all centers around Rama. Now again, if you're a note taker, maybe you want to circle Rama because Rama is of great importance. A lot of people, when they read that, believe that Ramah is simply another name for Bethlehem. 
They really do believe that. And for good reason. When you put it in context and recognize what's going on, that Herod is hunting down all of the male children in the region around Bethlehem, we could understand the weeping of Rachel over that place. So that's why we make that natural assumption. But that is not where Rama is at. Bethlehem sits six miles to the southeast of Jerusalem. Rama sits six miles to the northeast of Jerusalem. There's about 12 miles that separates these two villages, these two towns. They are not the same place. They are distinctly different. And Rama is very, very unique. Again, I want to tell you that this is only about five days old for me. So as I was studying this, I just found myself, well, nerding out, Bible nerding out on this type of thing, and I was amazed by it. But here's what you have to know. Rama, sitting six miles to the northeast of Jerusalem, is a border town. It sits right on the border between the northern part of the kingdom that we know as Israel and the southern part of the kingdom that we know as Judah. During the days of Daniel in the Old Testament, Rama was the center of everything that was happening. When the Babylonians came into Israel and Judah and they took captive all of the Hebrew people, Rama was the place where they were all processed. It was the place of deportation. Rama was a place with a horrible history, absolute horrible history. So when Matthew decides to record Jeremiah's prophecy that had to do with the Babylonian exile. He did that for good reason. But if you follow the other part that Jeremiah added to it about Rachel weeping over her children, you get to go deeper into the significance of Ramah, and this is it. Rachel was the wife of Jacob, also known as Israel, because God changed his name to Israel. She was the mother of Ephraim and Manasseh. Ephraim is oftentimes associated with the northern kingdom that we know as Israel. But Rachel was also the mother of Benjamin. Benjamin is associated with the southern kingdom that we know as Judah. So Rachel is the mother of all of the Hebrew people the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Rama sits right on the border between the two areas, and Rachel was weeping, according to Jeremiah, for all of the Hebrews during the time of the Babylonian captivity. And now as Herod is hunting down all of these babies, she's weeping again because of the impact on all of the Hebrew people. That is very very significant. That's why Rama is significant, because it sits between both kingdoms, and it represents the whole of the Holy Land. All of the Jewish people, all of the Jewish people were impacted by Herod's actions. By the way, so were all the Gentiles. So were we. But Rachel, particularly, the mother of all of the the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, What a heartbreak for her as Herod was hunting down all of those infants. That is a significant one that the Jewish people would have really paid attention to. 
Now, here's the other part of the geography, biblical geography, that is so intriguing. Let's just go back real quick. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Take a look with me. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Wise men from the east. If we had enough time, I would, I would ask this question of everybody that's sitting here with the Bible open in your lap. I would ask you to go down into your footnotes and tell me what the editors of your study Bible had to say about the East. Again, if you're somebody that highlights things, maybe you want to draw a circle around the East in your Bible, because in Matthew's telling of this, it's crazy significant. So I'd ask you to get into that and and start digging around and see where the East is. Oftentimes we will call it the Orient, believing that they came from Asia. And they kind of sort of did, just a little further south than that. The East, as it would be laid out during those days, was Persia, Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, the Middle East. They were known as kingmakers. People that sat on their thrones were always visited by these people. So when they came into Jerusalem looking for the one born king of the Jews, already born king of the Jews, and they made a declaration like that to Herod, they had Herod's attention. The kingmakers have come, and they are asking about the king, the one that was born a king. So now you can understand a little bit more of the threat. It wasn't just that they were bringing gifts to Joseph and Mary and the baby in the manger. They were were bringing a threat to Herod that there's somebody after your throne, thus his reaction. Now that's, that's its own part of the story. Part I really want you to hold on to is where they were from. Did you catch it? They were from the land of Persia. Persia to the East. Now, hopefully you remember when I told you Matthew wrote this book 20 to 30 years after the ascension of Jesus into heaven. This is cool. This is just cool. If you like Bible stuff, this is cool. So just grab hold of the saddle horn and hold on tight. Here you go. After Jesus ascended into heaven, history tells us that Matthew preached in the Holy Lands outside of Jerusalem. But he preached in the Holy Lands for two, three, four, five years, however long that might have been, until there was a a dispersion of the Jews based on Saul's persecution of the church. And when the, or not the Jews of the church. And then as the, the church was dispersed across the land, the apostles began missionary journeys. Matthew was one of them. History tells us that the very first place that Matthew went when he left the Holy Land was Persia. He went to Persia. And Matthew is the only gospel writers that records the coming of the wise men from the land of the east, from Persia. It stuck to him. It stuck to him. So he went to the land where they would have taken the message of Jesus back. And there were Christians there, but more important to him, there were Jews there. So he went to share the message of the gospel and build on what the wise men had taken back with them. Isn't that cool? From there, history tells us that he went to Syria and to Ethiopia and then, more than likely as his footprints and fingerprints have been seen, he went to Greece. 
He went to some interesting places. Yet we have very few of his words recorded anywhere in scripture. But we have his influence. We have his influence. He went back to Persia. Because these guys in the Christmas story, they caught him. Maybe he wanted, maybe he wanted to meet them. I don't know. But he went back to Persia. And he built on the message that they had carried. Now all of that happens in this one chapter of Matthew's gospel. The old voices speak and geography speaks. But there is a sub-story at work that is quite intriguing. Let me show it to you. We'll start in verse 1 again. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophets. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Here's the sub-story that is at work, and it is probably the most important of all of the things that we have talked about. There are three reactions to the coming of Jesus that are recorded by Matthew. Those three reactions are still very, very prevalent when people hear of Jesus for the first time. There are a few other reactions, but these three always rise to the top. There was anger that was visible from Herod. There was apathy. Interestingly enough, that was visible from the chief priest and the scribes. And there was then what I would refer to solely for the flow of it, adoration or worship. And that was visible from the wise men. Three reactions, anger, apathy, or adoration. Now those that get angry, much like Herod, even today they still have the same reaction. They look at Jesus and they worry about what he's going to take from them. That's where their anger comes from. For people that are angry at the coming of Jesus, I would encourage them to listen to these words from him. This is John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's misplaced anger. That is misplaced anger. If you know somebody that just seems mad at God all the time, odds are underneath the surface it's because they think either God didn't do something for them or God took something from them. So you show them that. John chapter 10, verse 10. For those that are apathetic, Jesus would speak to them as well. This is found in Revelation chapter 3, verse 15. He's writing to a church when he says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. 
God has little to no use for apathy. He has little to no use for people coming to him with a eh kind of mindset. The chief priest and the scribes, well, they found out about that. But for those that would worship, John chapter 5, verse 24 has Jesus saying this. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He who does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. The wise men understood that. They came and worshipped, and they found eternal life. At least I believe they did. Carried it back to Persia. They knew Jesus for who he was, and they worshipped him. The question then for all of us is this. It's on the screen. What's your reaction when you hear about Jesus? We have to define it. There's three definitions in Matthew chapter 2. Anger, apathy, and adoration. What's your reaction when you first hear about Jesus? It is of the utmost importance that we figure that out. And I'll leave you with a voice from the past. One of the old voices from a prophet in the Old Testament who tells us to work our way through this. His name's Isaiah. We've been looking at this passage of Scripture for the last four weeks. Let's look again. Isaiah 1. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. Now that's from the New International Version of the Bible. If you're reading an English Standard Version like I have been today, you won't read it just like that. I chose the NIV because I like the way it records Isaiah saying, Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. It's Christmas time. Settle the matter of who Jesus is in your life. But in order to do that, most of us have to begin with asking ourselves, what is my first reaction when I hear about him? From there, you can work your way to a settled place so that you know who Jesus really is. You can hear his voice. You can listen to what he has to say. I just showed you how that worked. Three different reactions from Jesus for three different emotions. The Bible is full of them. But you have to figure out where it begins for you so that you can see where it ends for you. And it is my prayer that it will end in salvation. Father in heaven, thank you for what Matthew wrote and the passion with which he wrote. I'm grateful for the timing of his book and what it means to us as he made his way back into the Holy Lands, we believe, to write what he had seen in all his travels. Thank you, Lord, for the bridge that it is, a bridge of understanding for all of us. I'm grateful, Lord, for those that have walked across that bridge and pray that you'll bless them. I know there's others that haven't put their foot on it yet. Would you change that today? Lord, inspire all of us through your spirit to answer the question, what is our reaction when we hear about Jesus? I pray that we'll all get to the place where we can be honest with it, that we might be settled in you. That's my prayer, offered with great faith in the name of Jesus.
Amen.